Okay, we're live. Um, good morning, Dr. Payan. Good morning. Good morning to all of you that who are probably listening to us. Hopefully, hopefully. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to see if, okay, so looks like I can post a comment on Facebook. So I'll just say we're live. All right. And we'll go from there. And um, also what I'll do is I'll post the recording of this so people can watch it later. Um, but hopefully um, over time we'll develop an audience and people will be joining us when we do these live streams. So <clears throat> the topic for th today is who are the Taliban? Um, the, you know, the Taliban have been in the news a lot lately. So um, I think people probably are, you know, they want to know uh, exactly who they are. They also might be mixing them up with some other groups. They might, you know, uh, there might be all kinds of um, clarifications we can make about who they are and maybe go in a little bit into their origins and, and why they're in Afghanistan. So I heard this morning there was another car bomb in, in Afghanistan and, you know, I'm, just wondering, would that have been a Taliban? I guess maybe we don't know who would have done such a thing, but um, I'm sure everyone's wondering the same kind of things. So, yeah, it's it's almost a daily occurrence in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, um, um, th there are these kind of suicidal bombings, car bombs, uh, assassinations, and targeted um, the, well, scholars. Uh, government officials, foreigners, diplomats, these were all targeted in the past, uh, since I would say September the 11th, 2001. Uh, and after that, when uh, the United States and the coalition forces went to Afghanistan, this movement has uh, gathering the momentum and it's really probably, at, now we are reaching the point that uh, well, their activities are increasing daily. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, I heard that too. I was watching and following <clears throat> closely. So, um, where do the Taliban come from? Are they mainly from Afghanistan? Let me go to the origins of that. The word Taliban comes literally from the Arabic word Talib. Talib in Arabic means student, or the seeker of knowledge. Then this word was borrowed in Persian, Talib, a singular, one student of a religious institution. <clears throat> then in Persian, the an, an, the literal transliteration of an, when you, when you as a suffix, you add an to a word or a name, let's take asp in Persian means horse. Mm -hmm. When you add the A-N, it becomes Aspan, means plural, horses. Right. So Talib is a one student. So Taliban, this Persian suffix made it plural. So Taliban means a group of, in more than one Talib. So this, the Taliban is a Persianized version. The root is in Arabic, but it's, mm -hmm. that's what, these were originally students of religious institutions. Okay. And the religious institutions from the beginning of the Islam, when Islam spread to other countries, and now we have about 57 Muslim majority countries. In each one of these Muslim countries who adopted Islam as their religion, they adopted the Islamic religious institutions too. So the elementary school in the Islamic tradition is begins in, in, in a mosque. So mosques could be considered as in, when the girls and boys up to age of eight or nine, they go to the mosques. And then gradually when Islam spread and Islam took roots in many other countries, spread to parts of Central Asia and Turkey and even Egypt and went to Spain, I mean, that the spread of Islam. So this Muslim educational systems were adopted in those countries where they had accepted Islam. So if we go to the first, the equivalent of the elementary schools in the West is a mosque. Then yeah. gradually when Islam spread <clears throat> and developed, the secondary schools 
were originated in the Muslim societies, and those were called madrasas, M-A-D-R-A-S-S-A-H, that's the translation. So these madrasas are the institutions of higher education based on Islamic teachings. Then gradually, when we come to the 10th century, in the 10th century, the institutions of higher education like Al-Hazhar, Darul Funun, so these were the like universities. So the elementary schools are in the mosques, then the secondary schools are the madrasas, then you have this institution, the universities, Islamic, other traditions. Then in the 11th and 12th centuries, when Islam spread to other countries, into Turkey and other places, they adopted some of the Western models of educational systems, elementary schools, secondary schools, and higher education institutions. So now in any Muslim society, we have two parallel systems of education. One are the religious institutions like the mosques and the madrasas and the Darul Funun or Darul Ulum Sharia, whatever they call it. So these are the Islamic institutions of elementary, secondary, and higher education. And then they also have the same similar as in European models they have adopted like elementary school, secondary schools, uh, colleges and universities. So both of these institutions are functioning. But the Taliban, the word Taliban is now used for those group of students that who are in religious institutions, the equivalent of seminaries in Jewish tradition or the Christians, they have seminaries where they train. So these madrasas and some of the institutions of higher education are training uh, clergy Muslim clergy and Muslim legal scholars and others. So these two parallel systems are very common in Muslim society, but they still use the word Taliban for those that who go to the institutions based on Islamic teachings. And what are the Islamic teachings? It's mostly the Quranic teachings and the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad. And also they, they teach sciences and philosophy and logic and astronomy and other subjects too at the same time, uh, even in the religious institutions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Al-Azhar is a completely, um, like a comprehensive university now that is also a madrasa, I guess. Yeah, in in, in the history of Muslim societies, uh, you will see these two parallel systems. Uh, But the people that who go to the seminaries, the equivalent of the seminaries, which are the madrasas, and again, in the case of Afghanistan, if we go now specifically focus on Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Taliban were not a movement as a group okay. to, to go to the field and participate in political activism. This is a new development. Relatively oh, okay. Yes. It started with two developments in the 1970s. We're talking about the, the 20th century development of Taliban movement as a political movement. Mm-hmm. as an activist movement. The two contributing factors were, one was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. And another development which happened in Iran was the Iranian revolution. The Iranian revolution uh, somehow defeated the monarchy at the time, yeah. Shah Iran, and they captured the government under the leadership of the ayatollahs and the religious. These ayatollahs were also the product of these religious institutions in Iran, in Iraq. So these were the Shia branch of the, because again, here comes the Sunni and the Shia. Both the Sunni and the Shias have this tradition. In Iran and Iraq, do they have Shi'i versions of madrasas? Are they also called? Okay. In Iraq, in Iran, in any, any Muslim society that you go to, there are series of madrasas and there are series of this new modern Western model based mm-hmm. educational system. So they both function. But day by day, when we see that it is the rise of this other modern education has almost dominated in most Muslim countries. Okay. Even, even in Iran and even in Afghanistan, still the universities are attracting more students and that's more common than okay. the madrasas. Yeah. So the madrasas became important when the 10 years of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. Mm-hmm. When the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, about 5 million Afghans became refugees in Pakistan, 5 million. And about 4 million of them became refugees in Iran. Most of these refugees could not afford to go to the modern schools. Their children were 
channeled into these madrasas. Because madrasas are cheap, they mm -hmm. are giving them food and shelter and, and this Islamic, which based on charities. I see. And for the Afghan Mujahideen, when they went to the Pakistan, five million of them. So their children could not go to the modern education schools because they're expensive. So all those kids were channeled to these madrasas. And these madrasas were funded by Saudi Arabia, United Arab These Arab countries were countries. And um, to be honest, Americans also supported this Islamic groups at the beginning against the Soviet Union. So Americans were indirectly contributing to that the development of, the, of this sort of extremist groups which originated in the madrasas of Pakistan and Afghanistan. So that's what. When Afghans are talking about, or the experts are talking about that the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the 10 years occupation, yeah. contributed to this development of the Taliban movement, which later they comes and they, they are now a power to reckon with. In the revolution, in the case of Iran, it was the Shia branch of Islam also that we would see that now Hezbollah is one of those. Mm -hmm. And all the Pasdaran revolutionary guards and others and others. These are all the consequences of the Iranian revolution and then the Shia branch of Islam. And in the Sunni branch of Islam, these Taliban have become a force, especially in Afghanistan. And the two major contributing, I would say three contributing factors now. One is the revolution in Iran, which had an impact on, on the Taliban movement. Another one is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And the third one is the outside support for the Taliban. At that time, it was the Mujahideen. That's one thing. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, Melinda, at the beginning, that people are confusing these Mujahideen with the Taliban. They're two different groups. Mujahideen were the ones that were fighting against the Soviet Union. They were yeah. not Taliban. I was yeah. hoping you would <laughs> get to that. Yeah. So, so okay, so, but during this 10-year occupation, you had both Mujahideen in Afghanistan and then also at, in, as a part of the refugee communities in Iran and Pakistan, or... No, these were the in okay. its in, Taliban were in its infancy at the time when the I Mujahideen see. were fighting. Mujahideen were the power. They were the tribal leaders, these Mujahideen. They were former teachers and scholars and lawyers and others. So the, in the Mujahideen group, you had all kinds of people fighting against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Okay. Okay. So they were fighting in the, against yeah, in the Taliban movement, it is mostly these religious scholars that who are dominating this seminary graduates are dominating. You will not find scholars and professors and lawyers in, in, in the Taliban. So that's the big, huge difference between Mujahideen were a, an umbrella group that which included all kinds of people, intellectuals, Western educated elite and others. So in the Mujahideen group, but in the Taliban group, it's mostly, and that's one reason why they call them a sort of extremist groups. And when you go to their implementations of the laws, Talibans are strictly going to establish a state in Afghanistan in which Sharia will be the dominant the Islamic laws, uh, will be the, the, the law of the land. And, mm -hmm. and, and the interpretation of Islam is again, Islam is a religion and it has been interpreted differently by different groups. And Talibans are regarded by scholars as collectively as one of the extremist groups. So they classify both the Iranian Ayatollahs as an extremist groups are the Hezbollah and the Shia branch of Islam. And when it comes to the Sunni branch in the case of Afghanistan and Pakistan, they classify the Taliban as an extremist group. I mean, that's the label that given to them mm -hmm. by outsiders and by analysts. What about extremists. in Afghanistan? I mean, um, was there a period when people just consider them sort of normal uh, or not extremist? Uh, is it still like that in some pockets of Afghanistan or do, do pretty much everyone consider them ex extremist or? Yes, now your, your, your question is not how, how did they develop, how, how did they become a force? Yeah. These refugees in, or the children that who came to Pakistan when they were born, it was 1979, it's 80. So now that each one of them are about 40 years old. Many of them who went to the madrasas and graduated. So they are a very large group in Pakistan. And it, by the way, we should not confuse. There are two groups of Taliban. One okay. are the Afghan Taliban, who are the refugees and others in Pakistan. They have their headquarters in Pakistan. And there are Pakistani Taliban. 
Pakistani Taliban are different from the Afghan Taliban. The okay. Pakistani Taliban have a diff, they call it Tahriki Taliban in Pakistan. This is the Persian name. Means the movement of the Pakistani Taliban. They're separate from the Afghan Taliban. Okay. So the Pakistani Taliban, their movement is against the Pakistani government. They want to defeat the Pakistani government and establish an Islamic state in Pakistan. But the Afghan Taliban is the one that which want to go to Afghanistan and defeat the current government. And they wanted to do the, the what do you call the Hamid Karzai's government and now against this current government. They want this to defeat and establish and Taliban were in ruling Afghanistan. I will come to that. So this as a political movement started in 19, 1994. I was in Pakistan year okay. before that and after that. So this movement started and supported by the Pakistani ISI and the Pakistani military and the Pakistani intelligence against the Afghan puppet government which the Soviet Union left. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan from 1979 to 1989. The Soviet troops withdrew from Afghanistan after 10 years of occupation, but they left a government in Afghanistan which was a pro-Soviet government. That one survived four more years. Mm -hmm. So they left in 1989. And by the way, this is another part of the history. The Soviet Union left Afghanistan in 1989. One year later, the Soviet Union collapsed as the Soviet yeah, Union. Right. This, this, I do not know. Probably the 10-year occupation in Afghanistan contributed to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Maybe not, but it was not the only thing. But it, that's really, uh, even President Trump mentioned this one day in one of his interviews that the Soviet Union went to Afghanistan and after 10 years, the Soviet Union collapsed and now it's Russia. So, hmm. so this Soviet Union collapsed one year after their troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, but they left the government behind. That government survived until 1992. In 1992, that government collapsed and the Mujahideen went and captured Afghanistan in 1992. Taliban came and captured the government in Afghanistan in 1996. So this, okay, the Mujahideen government in Afghanistan survived from nine, uh, 1992 to 1996. Oh, okay. In, 19, in 1996, Taliban defeated the Mujahideen government and established the Taliban regime in 1996. They were in power until September 11, 2001. It was during the Taliban right. rule in Afghanistan when the September the 11th happened. Of course. September the 11th happened and 3,000 Americans were killed in New York and Washington, D.C. The United States government warned the Taliban government at that time, in 19, uh, 2001, to mm -hmm. surrender the Al-Qaeda people to the, to the Americans or the United Nations, and Taliban did not do it. And that's one reason why the American and the coalition forces invaded Afghanistan in uh, 2001. In, on October 7, 2001, American forces went to Afghanistan and they, would, they, they, they defeated the, Pakistan, the, the Taliban government and Taliban left Afghanistan uh, in, 19, in 2001. And Americans took with them Hamid Karzai to Afghanistan. And mm -hmm. Hamid Karzai was supported by the American government. And until this moment, from 2001 to now, almost 2021. So the yeah. past 19 years, American forces have been in Afghanistan and American forces are supporting the current Afghan government. And, wow. now, and now the Af American government is negotiating with the same Taliban who was fighting with Americans for the past 20 years to negotiate with them a settlement. Right. And that's what Zalmay Khalil Zad and others are all. So they're, they're, they're working with Taliban somehow that Americans can withdraw its troops from Afghanistan after, after almost 20 years, and the Americans want to leave only about 2,500 American troops in Afghanistan if the negotiations will succeed the way it's going on right mm -hmm. now. So what's the goal of the negotiation? Is it just to, um, to get the Taliban to stop attacking people? Or... The, um, because, I mean, we don't want them to be the government anymore. I mean, there we don't... Two, there are two different views. Mm -hmm. American military has, the way we look at from outside, mm -hmm. 
the American military from the beginning, they thought that Taliban should be defeated or weakened, weakened to the point that they will accept the conditions of the peace in Afghanistan. So when Trump came as a president, he suggested that I'm going to withdraw the Afghan American troops. It's not our business to go to other countries. And, this, and American military officers were against that, this kind of irresponsible, abruptly withdrawing the troops without getting anything in Afghanistan, because we, we, we saw that at the beginning. When, right. the Soviet, when the Soviet Union left Afghanistan after 10 years of occupation, Afghanistan became a vacuum to which Al-Qaeda and Taliban and Mujahideen and all these radical groups went to Afghanistan. So the American generals and the American political scientists and experts were saying that withdrawing from Afghanistan without getting any kind of solution, it's dangerous because Afghanistan yeah. will again become a sort of place for the international terrorists. So international tell about, yeah, tell me about that vacuum left by the Soviets. I mean, when, when they pulled out, it was pretty abrupt, right? Like they just- They did very abruptly. And that's left. exactly what Americans did not want to repeat that. Because right. they went abruptly, left Afghanistan, and Afghanistan became a vacuum to Al-Qaeda, and then all these other groups were later formed, more dangerous than. So that's what Americans wanted to avoid. But yeah. somehow the Trump administration came and then scrambled everything, and so that's did not listening to the advisors and the people that were experts, whatever. That's okay. what our view, some of us that were analyzing Afghanistan. We saw that this abrupt leaving without getting any kind of concessions from the Taliban or the Pakistani government. Again, yeah. we are focusing now on Taliban, but we should focus on Pakistan because Pakistan is the place where the Taliban are surviving, training. They just go there because that's yeah, across they, the border. They have their headquarters, yes. Yeah. Their, their okay. leaders are under control of the Pakistani ISI. So what happened in the past 19 years, somehow with Americans having all kinds of problems all over the world, did not focus much on Pakistan. And one of the main reasons that Pakistan was not pressured was that because Pakistan is a nuclear power now and Americans have a difficulty dealing with Pakistan, the United States does not want to pressure Pakistan to the point that their government collapses and it's a nuclear power and we do not want to do that. But if we leave them the way they function, Taliban are still using the Pakistani territory for training and there are this Haqqani group and others. The Pakistani military knows they, they have not pressured the Taliban mm -hmm. to put the negotiation, negotiation table. So Pakistan has not been pressured to the, not I'm not talking about the influence, I should say. In diplomacy, you do not pressure a country. So Americans did not use their, neither the Soviet Union nor Americans have used their, their political power to bring some sort of peace to Afghanistan. So the Soviet Union failed after 10 years. Mm -hmm. My assessment is that Americans are failing after 20 years in Afghanistan. The things, the way it's going on. Oh my gosh. I do yeah. not see a bright future right now, the things are, the way things are going. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't have taken 20 years. Whatever it is, you know, the <laughs> we were trying to do there, or the government was trying to do there. Yeah. Um, on October the 7th, 2021, Mm -hmm. full 20 years of American involvement in Afghanistan. They went on October the 7th, um, 2001. Yeah. yeah, and then it will be October the 7th, 2021 will be exactly 20 years for America. Yeah, so I guess, um, so I guess a big part of that then would be that the Taliban can just flee into Pakistan, re regroup, regain strength, and come back. Is is that one of the main problems? They do. They do. They do. They do get their training. Their headquarters are in Quetta, Pakistan, Balochistan, and their headquarters are in Peshawar, Northwest, which used to be the northwest frontier of Pakistan. They're very active, and without the support of the Pakistan, right now, according to the Pakistani experts themselves among the Taliban that were fighting in Afghanistan. There are about, probably about 30,000 of them are Pakistani Taliban and others and Pakistani volunteers. So without the Pakistan's support, Taliban will have difficulty to survive. And the same is true for the Afghan government. Without the American support, the United States is supporting the Afghan, the current Afghan government, tons of money is. 
Uh, Americans have spent more money in Afghanistan than Americans spend in the Marshall Plan, redeveloping Europe and other places. So the, the, the United States is spending billion, spent billions of dollars. And another thing, let's go to the human life. Americans have lost close to 3,000 men and women in Afghanistan in the past 19 years. 3,000 American men and women, not counting the contractors and others. And billions of dollars were spent. And now Americans are going to withdraw what they are getting in Afghanistan. No one knows. Mm -hmm. Very unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so, um, so that's that's one main problem is that they can regroup in Pakistan. Um, <clears throat> Pakistan is on the border with the Pashtun area of Afghanistan. Is, is there, I mean, is there kind of like more strength within uh, the Pashtun communities for, you know, Taliban support or is it just, you know? It's a very good question. I'm glad that you brought this one. Not, not ethic when you look at Afghanistan, Afghanistan is a landlocked country. Mm -hmm. It has boundary with China, which is an East Asian country. Then Afghanistan has boundaries with, common boundaries with Tajikistan, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, which are the former Central Asia, and now they're independent countries. Then Afghanistan has about over 550 miles boundary with Iran, which is a Middle Eastern country. Then yeah. Afghanistan has a 1400 miles boundary with Pakistan, which is a South Asian region. Right. So in other words, Afghanistan is connecting East Asia to Central Asia to the Middle East and to South Asia. It's a very important strategic area. And again, coming to the ethnic groups, there are Pashtuns, almost equal number of Pashtuns in Afghanistan and equal number of Pashtuns in the Northwest frontier and other areas of Pakistan. Baloch is another ethnic group that which Afghanistan shared, because there are Balochs in three countries, in Iran and Pakistan and Afghanistan. One third of the Balochs are in, in, in Pakistan and one third probably probably a little bit more than one third in Pakistan. So these are ethnic groups which are Afghanistan shares with Pakistan. And this is one reason why Pakistan is that important for either bringing peace to Afghanistan or bringing chaos to Afghanistan. Pakistan is a major country. And another major country which is very much involved in Afghanistan is directly or indirectly is Iran. Yeah. Iran is a Shia majority country. It's about a country of about 80 million people. <laughs> <laughs> Afghanistan is estimated around 30 million people and about 15% mm -hmm. of Afghans are the Shiites. And they're from the Shia, same Shia branch as the Iranians are. They call it the 12 Shiites. Mm -hmm. So they have influence with each other. They're co-religionist, co-sectarian groups. And the same is true with the Pakistan. So this is one reason why Pakistan is so effective, so strong in Afghanistan because of these common ethnic groups. And at the same time, the headquarters of many of these Pakistani move and the Pakistan the Taliban were I was in Pakistan at the time in the 1994 when the Taliban were making attacks on the on the Mujahideen government at the time. Uh, they they defeated the Mujahideens and then they captured. That was the without the help of Pakistan, this would not have happened. And I think it's everyone knows in the military and intelligence of the United States that Pakistan is the country that which can which can bring the peace to Afghanistan. I mean not not bring the peace help bring the peace more than any other country in the region or in the world. And, if, Pakistan um, is not, if Pakistan is not cooperating with bringing peace, yeah. but Pakistan wants to bring peace in Afghanistan in their own conditions, which is important for their national security against India too. That's another factor. Yeah. Is, what's what's Pakistan, Pakistan and India are in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Pakistan is using Afghanistan mm -hmm. as a reservoir, uh, as, a, as, a, as a strategic importance as a strategic depth for the Pakistanis. So, so Afghanistan have become a now, it used to be an arena for the superpower competition. Now Afghanistan has become an arena for the regional powers. Iran is, Iran is jockeying in, to have influence in Afghanistan. Pakistan wants in Afghanistan a government which is pro-Pakistani. India wants a government in Afghanistan which is pro-India, or at least not neutral as far as Pakistan and India is concerned. And China wants a government in Afghanistan which is independent, so China can use its 
natural resources. Yeah. China has already received the copper in Afghanistan. There is lithium in Afghanistan. There are other minerals which are very important for China and for the United States and Russia too. Russia is watching Afghanistan too. It's a country that which has tremendous amount of uh, natural resources, including lithium, copper, iron. Um, there are some, and not counting the precious minerals of Afghanistan, which are from uh, rubies to lapis lazuli and emerald and others and others. So Afghanistan yeah. is, 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 has natural resources, which yeah. is, because of the wars and others, those were not exploited uh, the way they were supposed to be exploited. Yeah, there's so many landmines still on the ground. Yeah, and when I go to Afghanistan each year, I see people are brought on backs of the donkeys or carts or their foot blown up because those hundreds and thousands of mines mm -hmm. the Soviets have put in the places for their own security, they're still there. Afghanistan is one of the most mined country in the world. Yeah. One or two in the whole world. So the Soviets have planted the bombs, did not remove it, and Afghans did it, and American supported groups in Afghanistan, they did it, Pakistan. And the mine clearing is, is it's, nobody pays attention to that. Uh, in these days. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there's just so much, um, so much to cover, you know, that the, the mind problem becomes, you know, sadly, it's not considered newsworthy, I guess, anymore. <clears throat> but um, that's a, that's a huge problem there. I mean, you know, imagine trying to create a farm or I don't know, create create a settlement with all those explosives just lying everywhere. You know, it's impossible. So it's very hard to, to, re to rebuild. Afghans are drawing some conclusions from Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and American involvement in Afghanistan. Even though Americans do not like to be called American invasion, they do not call it invasion, they call it supporting Afghanistan. The Soviet Union was invading. We are not in, but the same, the same. When, when the foreign forces are in a country, mm -hmm. that country which has foreign forces and supports the government, they are dominating the politics and economics of that country. So that's one thing that Afghans have learned, uh, that foreign invasions mostly do not fix things. They destroy things very easily when the rebuilding becomes the extremely important problem. What the Soviets have left behind, the roads were bombarded, the schools were bombarded, yeah. uh, and they never built anything. There, there's very little that one can say that the, in the 10 years occupation, Soviets have built this hospital, Soviets have built this bridge, Soviets have built this factory, nothing. In this 20 years of American involvement in Afghanistan, very little. Yeah, there's the government was established in Afghanistan is recognized. There are some things, but there is very little that Afghans can really be boast about that, well, the foreign invasions have, they have done some good things. Kabul universities, functioning universities, girls are going back to school. There are progress made in many areas, but as far as the system of the government, yeah, we should rail this country well, the constitution of the rights of the women, for example. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, totally. Um, and I mean, there's a lot we could talk about in terms of like, why, um, why things don't get built like hospitals or power plants. My dad was in Afghanistan working on the power grid uh, or, you know, the power generation there. Um, but, um, you know, I think it just has to do with, I guess, armies aren't really made for building, they're made for destroying, and it's mainly been a military presence. Um, I mean, there's also a diplomatic presence, I suppose, as well, but it seems pr primarily military. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, it is true that uh, sometimes this militarization of the civilian projects, so yeah. any outside military which supports a hospital, that becomes mm -hmm. a target for the enemy. That, well, this is an institution that Americans want to build. It's not a university. It's the American sort of 
training pro-American group, that sort of thing. It becomes very mm-hmm. So that's one thing that why when these foreign governments go to another country and by their military, they want to establish something. To begin with, that's that, the target for the opposition. But if it is through civilian villages and at the grassroots level, it does not create that kind of resentment, but but, but it's, it's something, okay, fancy university is built by the Russians, Institute of Technology or whatever. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, that was a target for the anti-communist groups in Afghanistan. And when Americans build something to make impression that, well, this is this is an American school or American such and such and such, and, and built by the military. Uh, so... So that's one reason why your father was one of those. They wanted to civilize what are the help which goes through the electric grid, which everyone can use it, roads, for example, clinics, hospitals, vaccinations mm-hmm. of the children and that sorts of thing. So those yeah. are not an easy target. But if it's military behind that, you do that in, by, by the uniformed people, it becomes a clear thing that the invading armies are building these things. They're not something original which is coming from the people themselves. Right. Afghanistan is a poor country. It does not have. We are talking about ten years of the Soviet occupation, ten years of the civil war in Afghanistan, and now ten years of American occupation. We are talking about forty years. Forty years of war in a poor, in yeah. a poor country. We are talking about one generation. So one generation of Afghans have been just born and raised and got old and got died uh, in wars, in fightings. Uh, again, coming to the point that Taliban uh, is, uh, as, as they never had power through, them, through this history of Islam in the past 1400 or 1400 and some years from the beginning of Islam. Mm-hmm. They were this, but they became a force because they're using guns and this new technologies and tanks and blowing up the mine, that sort of thing. So that's one reason. So that's a they're boasting that God is on their side. And at the same time, they're using very little weapons, which is made by outsiders. So it's, it's, a, it's a... Do you think they were inspired by the Mujahideen or were they mainly rivals with them? I mean, what's their relationship with the Mujahideen? Some of them are the former Mujahideen. When they became a power, what happened? As a matter of fact, as I mentioned that, when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, there was only one channel for Americans to support the resistance against the Soviet Union. It was during the Reagan administration, especially. When you look at the Reagan administration, when you go, just, just go any any magazine and any record, President Reagan would invite these Afghan Mujahideen with their beards and turbans to the White House quite often. Yeah. And Reagan called them freedom fighters against the Soviet Union. They are the people that were fighting. Brzezinski will go to the boundaries even during the the Carter administration, the Reagan administration, they all supported the Afghan resistance against the Soviet Union. But what happened? They did not support the, the intellectuals and educated people and the nationalists and others. They just put their eggs in one basket with this. Oh, wow. So to speak, today, they termed them as radicals or extremists. So the Americans supported the extremists in Afghanistan. This is a fact. We should not ignore it. So the American government during the Reagan administration, during the Bush administration and other, they all supported these radical groups, which were Mujahideen and later the Taliban. So finally, they turned against the interests of the ones that those supported them. So what happened? Unfortunately, in international, this kind of situations as Afghanistan, when a country is invaded and the invaders leave, so the country is left in, 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 in rubbles. Those are, I mean, that's, everything is destroyed, schools, universities, roads. Um, power plants. And that's why your father was there to help rebuild the power grid in Afghanistan. So there were many of those that were in the civilian areas because they want to rebuild Afghanistan. So this rebuilding has become so politicized uh, today that um, it's, it's, it's happening only in those areas which the commanders want them to do. So, and Americans did not have, Americans had at one point 100, and, 100 American troops in Afghanistan. 100 American troops and 50,000 NATO troops were in Afghanistan. So 150,000 American and coalition forces were in Afghanistan. Now there are only about 4,000 left. Mm-hmm. 
the very easy argument is if 150,000 foreign troops did not defeat the Taliban, what can this 2,500 Americans, which will be left in Afghanistan, they will do against the Taliban? So what would they do? So they cannot fight against the Taliban. So what they do? They want to negotiate with Taliban. So that's the that's the that's the very simple argument now. Mm-hmm. Hundred and fifty thousand American and coalition forces did not defeat the Taliban. Taliban are still saying that we are not defeated; we are winning. Now, what can? What about, um, I mean, what about Iran and Pakistan in this? I mean, like, uh, why aren't we negotiating with them too? You know, like it seems kind of like pointless. I, I don't know. Maybe American negotiators with Iran. There is no negotiation. Whatever American builds in Afghanistan, Iran is mm-hmm. going to destroy it. So mm-hmm. Iranians are sabotaging what Americans are doing in Afghanistan. Because and that's the same is true. What Iran is doing, Americans are sabotaging it. So that's what Americans and Iranians are each other's foes now. So they're they're countering each other's successes in Afghanistan. Yeah. In the case of Pakistan, which is still a country which is closely linked in national security, international security with with the Sindhu Pact and that the past of Iran, I mean, the Pakistan. So Pakistan still is a country that American military is, has some influence in Pakistan. Yeah. But the experts are saying that Americans have not used their influence effectively in Pakistan to convince the Pakistani military and intelligence and others to take positive steps in Afghanistan. And one of the reasons that they are giving is that since Pakistan is a nuclear power, has tons of nuclear bombs, and Americans cannot pressure them to the point that they can collapse. So the United right. States is walking very tight rope to pressure Pakistan to the what degree so that they cannot collapse and keep the nuclear bombs safe, because they're afraid if Pakistan was shattered like Yugoslavia, mm-hmm. Yugoslavia did not have nuclear bombs. Pakistan has nuclear bombs. If something like Yugoslavia happens in Pakistan, the dangers it's really people cannot even think that what will be the consequences of shattering Pakistan into Punjabi. Punjab will be going to one direction. Sindh will be going in a different direction. Balochistan will be going in a different direction. And the Pashtuns will be going because Pakistan is not a very strong country either. It's a fragile when you look at right. the ethnicity, the sectarian groups. So that's what American policymakers know that, that Pakistan is a fragile country. So we should not pressure them as much as we want to. Mm-hmm. So they're dealing with Pakistan in very delicate dancing. So yeah. At the same time, they want to have positive steps in Afghanistan, but at the same time, not to the level. So this is one reason. Anyone, if tomorrow Biden comes, he will have the same problem with Pakistan. I don't think that that will be solved. Dealing with Pakistan has become one of the most important priority, I think, in the region. One South Korea, North Korea is one. Sounds like too much about North Korea. Unfortunately, they're not talking too much about Pakistan. Right. Yeah. I was just thinking that. I mean, when I I think of nuclear powers or potential, you know, nuclear issues, I think about North Korea because that's what's in the news. Um, But not much is mentioned about Pakistan in terms of its nuclear capabilities in the news. Yeah. This is again one of the muscular. miscalculations that they think that Pakistan will remain like this for 50 more years, but that's that's a wishful thinking. Yeah. Pakistan is a fragile country and with the nuclear powers. It's just like imagine Yugoslavia being possessing 10, 15, 20 nuclear bombs, each one of them. Some people say that many more powerful than the bombs were used in Nagasaki and Hiroshima in World War II. So Pakistan is possessing, wow. it's the only the only Muslim majority country in the world which possesses nuclear bombs. And that's where the danger lies. Okay. That's quite a lesson, I think, um, from our conversation. Um, Anything else that we should cover in terms of like what people should know that's not in the news, like um, with regard to the Taliban and who they are and their their role? was one thing my whole because I, I get a lot of emails from my colleagues and my friends mm-hmm. that collectively yeah scholars in the universities people know who are Taliban who are Pakistani Taliban 
what does Taliban mean, their, their movement, where do they get their support from? So that's, they, they wanted to shed some light on that. Coming to the financial support of the Taliban. So the most important source for the Taliban support is the Pakistani government right now, number one in the world. Number two is the Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, the people that were channeling their religious charities. They call it Zakat, which is the fifth column of the Muslims. Um, and that's what each Muslim is supposed to give 2.5% among the Sunnis and about almost 5% among the Shia branches to the charity and needy. They're channeling those money to these not knowing mm-hmm. if them are just devout Muslims. They do not, they think that well, Taliban are fighting for the right. They're fighting against Americans and Americans are supporting Israel and that sort of propaganda plays an important role. Uh, and then they are channeling the, and it's very difficult to close those channels uh, of this, this money going to them. The second, Taliban are now in control of almost about half of Afghanistan, about 40 some percent. They're controlling the areas which are under the, the narcotics, the opiums are grown. They take Oshar, Oshar in Arabic means 10th. So that's what they're collecting their money. In another area, they're controlling, when your father was in Afghanistan, I, he knew that. For electricity, you need diesel and petroleum and others for the generators. Where are they coming from? They're coming from through Pakistan because Iran is a country that Americans do not allow Iran to be used through Pakistan. And it comes through Pakistan and Pakistan. All those roads are controlled by Pakistani Taliban and Afghan Taliban. They're taking the money from this, each one of the trucks that they're allowing. So they're generating money. This is illegal, yeah. illicit money, either through the, through the opium and drug trafficking or through controlling the, the, the areas. Americans would need gasoline for their military garrisons in Marja and Arghandab. And, and Taliban are taking money from if they are allowing some of the trucks to go and pass. So they, they, they are in control. Uh, so the, the, the money that they are generating. And then there are again, those countries that which are against the United States. The American intelligence have discovered that even the Russians are supporting the Taliban indirectly against Americans because the Russians want to take the, the revenge from Americans, what they did to the Russians, in the, to the Soviet Union in the 10 years of occupation. So Iran is, some Iranians are supporting indirectly the Taliban too, not because they like Taliban. Taliban are fighting against Americans. So that's what my enemy's enemy is my, my, my friend. That, that, I mean, this, this is a crude example that they give, but still that's, that's in practice, it works. Uh, Iran is indirectly supporting the Taliban that were discovered by the American intelligence explosives that Iran has and Russia is indirectly supporting the, the Taliban, either directly or indirectly. Uh, China is not happy with Americans succeeding in Afghanistan. So the United States policies have many enemies in the region. Uh, the clear ones are China does not want, want Americans to succeed in Afghanistan. Iran does not want Americans to succeed in Afghanistan. Russia does not want Americans to succeed in Afghanistan. Which kind of goes back to my question of why aren't we talking to all the surrounding countries? It seems sort of like a futile mission if we're, you know, whatever America is doing is being countered by all the other countries in the region. Even if that's, Afghans want it, or yeah, that, that, that's that's the Afghans are asking the same question. Melinda, is you are asking that if mm-hmm. it's complicated, Russia does not want one Amer- Americans to do in Afghanistan. Iran does not want Americans to succeed. Russia, China does not want, and Taliban do not want Americans to succeed. So who are not supporting the American? So that's one reason that people are in inside Afghanistan is asking that the Afghanistan question has become more than the problem of America or China. There has to be some sort of international consensus. Yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. the Afghans are longing for. I mean, I, I, I listened to this. They said that the Afghan problem has become so complicated that if Americans do something, others do not like. If China does, mm-hmm. others do not like. If Russia wants to do something for Afghanistan, the Mujahideen that who fought against them for 10 years, they are not. If Pakistan does, Afghans hate the Pakistani influence in Afghanistan either. 
if India does, so let's, let's India have, seems like a major, yeah, a major. Let's have a different formula now. There. Yeah. There has to be some sort of either United Nations effort that all of these countries should come together to consensus and say that, well, look, let's, let's do something for the poor Afghans. It does, it does make me think of Wilson, you know, <laughs> like when, what he was yeah. saying we should do, but it didn't quite, you know, Woodrow Wilson, whose ideas pretty much started the United Nation. Um, the League of Nations. He, he started the League of Nations, which became the United Nations. Yes, absolutely. You know? Yeah, you're right. I mean, his idea was to to have this sort of yeah like international consensus to solve problem the world's problems without war right so but it didn't seem to turn out that way with the un like the un is somehow like kind of uh, impotent i guess or it's, just, it's, a, it's a funny part of the history the whole league of nations was the brainchild of a great thinker like woodrow wilson mm -hmm. who came with the league of nations in the International Court of Justice in Hague, so that people can take their disputes first before going to the war. It was a very nice ideal. But when it came to the United States Congress, they did not approve it, they did not ratify it. So the Americans were left outside. So it, it tells you that sometimes things become so complicated that a visionary president who wanted something, the Congress did not ratify. So that's what we have to wait about another war to come. And then Eisenhower, again, a Republican president, became successful launching the United Nations. It was okay. a charge that which happened. So another Republican president came up and he said- And he was also very um, opinionated, had strong ideas about national sovereignty. Yes. He didn't, he didn't want to support the, um, like when the Suez Canal uh, was- uh, Nationalized. Yeah, it was basically, the, the grips on the Suez Canal were getting loosened, you know, um, wasn't it Nasser who was, he was getting some Russian support. I was actually just he, watching this on the crown, so. <laughs> it was before that, it was 19, 1954, that was that, yeah. to the first uh, uh, British, French, and Israeli attack on Egypt at the time when the Swiss Canal was nationalized in 1954. Mm -hmm. Nasser came, the, the coup took place in Egypt in 1952. Nasser became undisputed leader in 19, so he nationalized. Yeah. And what happened? And again, it was Eisenhower that who finally pressured both Israel, the France and uh, uh, United Kingdom at the time because mm -hmm. they did not want, Eisenhower was a military officer and he knew he was the commander of the theater in Europe. He did not want to go to another war because Americans were just out of World War One, World War Two. The Korean War just ended at that time, and they yeah. didn't want to create another war. So that was one of the reasons. So Nasser succeeded. Nasser used the time effectively. That's why he mm -hmm. succeeded by nationalizing the Swiss Canal at that time. So mm -hmm. it happened. Yeah, you are absolutely right. So yeah, but at least uh, he he launched an institution which survived until this date. So the mm -hmm. United Nations. Yeah, it is not very effective the way we want to or anyone else. But it has mm -hmm. still prevented many and done extremely good things. Not only one branch of the United Nations, we're talking about the ILO, which is the labor organization, WHO. Yeah. You know, food and, there's also the Food and Agriculture. Yeah, UNESCO and others and others are very successful institutions. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the world can be proud of some of those. Yeah, they're not very effective, they could be better. Mm -hmm. uh, I had an internship at the UN <clears throat> in Bangkok, and um, I mean, it's um, it's kind of, it feels similar to a university in a way, like it's definitely, there's that bureaucratic element to it, you know, um, it has lots of good programs, but the right hand doesn't always know what the left hand's doing, and um you know, but I, I do I do tune into the UN meetings every now and then to see what they're talking about. They're usually talking about really critical global issues. Um, and like they have the sustainability goals that I think are really good. So they do provide like a framework, you know, that could potentially be followed. It's just what, how do you get countries on board, you know? Yeah, and, and unfortunately, um, eventually some of them become very politicized. Mm. Uh, so this, when, when you mix politics with religion, 
our religion with politics. Uh, welfare of the people and the poor and needy and disease and just look at this, the, the, the COVID-19. Uh, I, I don't think without the international effort, we will ever succeed. Uh, one country cannot do that. Two countries together cannot do that. Not true. You, you cannot prevent the disease. Um, you cannot uh, isolate yourself in a, in a bubble forever. So again, uh, those institutions are needed. Um, could be better. Could be better, but yeah, it's important to have a kind of, uh, not nonpartisan, but you know, um, some entity that's not linked with a specific country, I guess, that can collate all the different perspectives and different input. So, um, so that we have some kind of concept or strategy for moving forward. But I guess it's up to countries to cooperate and you know, local communities as well. So, well, I think our time is almost up. But if you have anything else. Um, we can take a little bit longer. I, I don't have anything. What I wanted that uh, how the, the, the term Taliban came into being and who were the Taliban at the beginning, students of the religious institutions, Islamic religious institutions, madrasas. Today, they do not call uh, a student who goes to the elementary school or public school in Afghanistan or in Iran or Tur Turkey. They do not call them Talib. They call them students. But the ones that who go to the to the religious institutions, they're using the term Talib only specifically for those groups that will go to seminaries, Islamic seminaries. Mm -hmm. In the case of Turkey, Imam Khatib or Imam Khatib institutions, which they call them by the name. Uh, so those are training mullahs and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Uh, so, and then again, I, I, saw the, I saw some of those in Turkey. Yeah. It's only two groups of Taliban. One mm -hmm. is Pakistani Taliban. They are separate from the Afghan Taliban. They do not take their command from the same person. They have different mm -hmm. leadership and different targets. Uh, and again, not to be confused with the Mujahideen. And they're political, and they're, they're more political. They're, yeah, the, the Pakistani Taliban, their focus is to gain election and succeed inside Pakistan more than Afghanistan. But the Afghani Taliban are somehow, since they do not have their own headquarters in Afghanistan, so they have their headquarters in Pakistan and they have their training camps there. They get their charities there. So their leaders are there. If you remember that Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan and his second in command, Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda, this Ayman al-Zawahiri is in Pakistan right now in the Pakistani border areas. So, and, and not only now we're talking about this other ISIS, we have not discussed that yet. We, talk, we focused on Taliban and Al-Qaeda, but there is another radical group, which is worse than both, all of them combined. Oh, yeah. It is this Daesh, or this ISIS, or Islamic State of Iraq and Levant, ISIL. So this is more brutal, more dangerous. And they have their... Right. I have that they impression. Have their, they have their followers in Afghanistan. They're really brutal. Yeah. And whereas the Talib, it seems like uh, the Taliban um, sometimes are like community members and that sort of they have a family there. They're, you know, fairly normal people, I guess, you know, in Afghanistan. Um, whereas it seems like uh, with uh, Daesh, it's more like they're really militant, like uh, more like um, gangs, you know, like. Uh, this is one reason why Daesh is not succeeding much in Afghanistan and Pakistani areas because they're foreigners, they're Arabs. Yeah. Majority of them are Arabs, either Syrians or Iraqis or Saudi Arabians, just like we saw this September 11. September 11, those 19 terrorists, mm -hmm. 15 of them were from Saudi Arabia. So among this Daesh group, there are Saudi Arabians, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, Sudanese, all kinds of people. They do not have roots in Pakistan. They do not know the culture of Pakistan or Afghanistan. So what they do, they do most of these dangerous things through the somehow they subcontract that to the Taliban, Pakistani Taliban or Afghan Taliban. Since they do not have their own Arab roots in the village, they cannot even speak to the people in in, in Urdu, in Pakistani. Wow, yeah. They cannot speak to the Afghans in Pashto and Farsi. Uh, and so the, what they do, they're totally, so they do, they, they're good fighters. 
but when it comes to the commanding and the commander is 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 an afghan taliban at pakistani time so that's one reason that the, the, this daesh they're more successful in the arab countries when the, they have common language yeah. they're successful in other countries which the languages are different than the arabic so they have to do the most of the dangerous things terroristic attacks and whatever is through the through through the ones that who are in the first line uh, people like local uh, afghan taliban or pakistani taliban so for that reason i, I always argue that daesh can make more headways in in, in, in arabs in arabic speaking countries right, than right, right. good point yeah okay good well um so if any of you are interested in more of these conversations, we will be having another podcast in three weeks. Um, and just, you know, follow us on our Facebook page, or you can also um, follow us. Um, we have a YouTube channel and we have, um, you can follow us on Spreaker. And there's a, a website, actually I can maybe put the website. Put that in the comments. Um, and um, Dr. Payan also teaches a course this coming spring. Um, it's 5645 is the course number and it's in international studies and in Near Eastern languages and culture. So you can take it through either department. And um, in that class, you can really take a deep dive, have these kind of conversations, but also with, you know, learning like the history, the like how to break down the meaning of all these current events. Um, so I, I highly recommend that class. That was uh, one of the best classes I took when I was a graduate student at Ohio State um, and helped me, you know, kind of figure out what I was most um, curious about and wanted to study in the Middle East. So it's, it's definitely broader than Afghanistan. It's the whole Middle East that you'll cover. Um, and what other resources do you want to share, Dr. Payan, with with people who are tuning in? Uh, I think probably for the, the first of all, that's which is easy to read, is the keys to understanding the Middle East that, that you and I prepared. It's an e-book. Uh, and there are some other books that which, if they want to know about Afghanistan, uh, it's written by an archeologist by the name of Louis Dupree. Uh, it's Afghanistan. Uh, it's very encyclopedic. It gives the almost a 40,000 years of the bones that which were found in Afghanistan from that period of on. It's all the, the bacterian civilization of the time. And so that, that would be something that if they want to know about um, Afghanistan, then Afghanistan came under the control of the Persian Empire, of the Achamanian. So he, he covers all those. So those are the two books if they want to know something about Afghanistan and the region. And about the Middle East, it's uh, Arthur Goldschmidt's book, which the concise history of the Middle East, which is a very encyclopedic. It covers country by country. Uh, if anyone who, well, these are for the, the beginners. Uh, and uh, so, and the others that who have, there are all, all kinds of new books are written about Afghanistan. They can do the Google search and they will find new topics yeah those are all great resources um i highly recommend those definitely worth read i would say everyone should definitely read the goldschmidt book it's easy it's not easy to read it's just it, it is written well and it flows and it's very interesting it really explains a lot of the history of the whole middle east and then um i've also shared our ebook a link to our ebook if you're interested in that and that's very easy as well it's entirely open online and it's basically actually a website, but you it, it's got a table of contents and you can flip through it like a book. So um, there's visual aids and lots of things. So um, so yeah, I think that's it for today. I hope that we'll, we'll get some more people. We had uh, three people join us today live. So I'm studying, <laughs> I'm getting the hang of, you know, uh, how all this works. But I think if we keep doing it, we'll get more and I'll definitely be sharing the recording so we can so people can have a chance to to get the information at another time too. So, and I'll be inviting other um, Ohio State professors who uh, focus on the Middle East. So we'll be having a lot of different voices on these podcasts. Um, 
And I'll probably also be posting on our YouTube channel a video about minority rights in Turkey that uh, um, came out of a webinar that we did a little while back. So I'm also going to put our website here. Should be on the Facebook page as well, but just, you know, you can find a lot of resources there as well. So uh, we should do something about also the ethnic groups because Afghanistan is, is, a, is, a, is a mosaic. Yeah. Of because sharing boundaries with Iran and Turkmenistan and Tajikistan and Uzbekistan and China and Pakistan. So it has all this. You have Uzbeks in Afghanistan, you have Tajiks in Afghanistan, you have Turkmen in Afghanistan, you have Baluch in Afghanistan, you have Kyrgyz in Afghanistan, you have all sorts of Shia, Sunni, this and that. So that's a, the, the, the ethnography of that region. And then what Afghanistan shares with Iran, what Afghanistan shares with Uzbekistan, Tajik. So that's another topic which will be of interest to the people. That if we can Definitely. Have yeah. Yeah, I would be really uh, interested in that, um, especially after today's discussion. So let's put that let's put that in our list of topics that we'll cover in the podcast. Okay, good. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Payan. I really appreciate you well, taking. Thank you, Melinda, for organizing it and then for being a moderator. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thanks to our international affairs colleagues as well, because they shared this out for us. And uh, we're actually a part of the Office of International Affairs at Ohio State, a really wonderful group of people. And it's the, um, the office that supports education abroad, virtual exchange, and all of our wonder, wonderful international faculty and students at Ohio State that enrich our um, cultural diversity there. So thanks, everyone. Have a great day. I'm going to sign off. Bye. Okay. Bye bye.